At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Almost two years ago, I had the honor of emceeing a not-for-profit event for an organization that I care deeply about. Due to COVID, the event was online, all virtual. We had hundreds and hundreds of attendees, future donors attending as well. We also had families tuned in who had directly been impacted positively by the work we did. To kick off the evening, I introduced the agenda, I shared my respect and my love for the organization, then invited our executive director to speak. She spoke. Then a couple of board members spoke. Then a few families impacted by the generosity of the community shared. Then a child whose life was made dramatically better because of the work of the organization spoke. And then at the very end, the culmination, we had an employee from the organization speak. This is someone who's been involved with the organization for more than a decade. Of all the messages shared that night, hers was the shortest. And... Hers was by far the finest, the most compelling message that perfectly and emotionally coalesced the entire evening. As my camera flipped back on, and as I wiped the tears from my eyes, I thanked all of the participants for joining us that night. But then I called out that final presenter specifically for what she said. I thanked her for her expressive her beautiful, her passionate, her articulate, and her perfectly positioned message on the work we do and why we must strive to positively impact even more lives this coming year together. And then I thanked everybody for joining us to make tonight a reality. We wrapped up the meeting and it was by far the best virtual meeting that I was part of in 2020. Until, until. Until the following day, when I got an email from the executive director that something that I had said the night before deeply and negatively impacted one of the participants. It turns out that I used a word to describe someone articulate as describing one of our employees. That word may mean very little to you. It meant nothing to me that night, but it might mean quite a bit to a person of color. It might have hurt her deeply. My first reaction was, of course, as you might imagine, defensive, almost angry. Doesn't she know me by now? Doesn't she know my heart for this work and my love of her? Did she miss that out of a dozen presenters? It was her that I celebrated. It was she who was the apex of the entire night. 
Did she miss all the other adjectives that I used to describe her? Expressive and beautiful and passionate and perfectly positioned. Now, my friends, if you're still listening to my voice live today, whether you view the example I just shared as microaggression or not, whether you view my words that night as completely taken out of context, overblown, or you have, like I do now, a deeper appreciation for where this wonderful woman was coming from as a person of color, one thing is certain. It's harder than ever to have healthy, life-giving, constructive conversations around identity in these divisive times. So how do we not just speak better, but listen better? How do we not just race forward, but intentionally quiet ourselves to reflect and become not only better versions of ourselves for ourselves, but inspire others in our community to become better versions of themselves too? Well, joining us today to have this healthy, awesome, life-giving conversation with us is my friend. He's about to be yours. His name is David Glasgow. David is executive director of the Meltzer Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging. He's an adjunct professor at NYU School of Law. We'll talk more about that. He's the author of the book, Say the Right Thing, and he's joining us today on the Live Inspired Podcast. So my friends... Regardless on of which side of the aisle you choose to sit, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do today. Push your seat a little bit closer to the middle. Grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. Open wide your mind and your heart as I bring on my new friend, and now yours, his name is David. David, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, uh, you heard the introduction of not only the, the topic for the day, but a little bit of you, David. So when you have an opportunity of introducing yourself, how do you like to introduce yourself? Well, I probably introduce myself a little differently depending on the audience, John. So in a grocery store, I might uh, put the resume away and just focus on the fact that uh, I am a husband, a father of two young boys aged five and three. Uh, originally from Australia. I, if I'm talking to a more professional audience, I might focus on the fact that I'm an attorney, a trained lawyer, but that I now work at uh, New York University in a research capacity focused on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I would say there's the kind of prof professional bio and the personal bio. And when you're speaking to hundreds, or in today's case, tens of thousands, how do you like to introduce yourself to uh, even the larger audiences? Yeah, so uh, I am a co-author of a book, uh, Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. Uh, and in my professional life, I work very closely with my co-author, Kenji Yoshino, uh, at the Meltzer Center, where we help people navigate how to have better conversations about issues of identity and diversity. So whether you're struggling to have conversations about race, gender, LGBTQ issues, disabilities, socioeconomic status, and whether you're in the workplace or at school or in your family, a big part of our mission as a center and the work that we do is really helping people navigate those conversations. So with the vast majority of my guests, I, I, I back the Qantas flight out of DFW. I take us back to Sydney and then onward from there. And I let them share a lot around their backstory, the genesis story of what led them forward. You and I, I think, have so much ground to cover as we talk about these conversations. I'm just going to dive right in, okay? Yeah, so of course. Let's start with the book. That's that's what you and I originally connected over. 
Why did you write the book, Say the Right Thing? So we work at a center that's really dedicated to advancing diversity and inclusion, creating inclusive cultures within organizations. And one of the barriers that we kept encountering over and over in working with people, whether it's students at NYU Law or corporate executives for Fortune 500 companies, is that a lot of people who want to join the struggle for more inclusive institutions are terrified of getting it wrong. And so what they end up doing is retreating in fear. So they might fear offending someone that they care about in the manner that you described in the story at the beginning, or they might worry more about consequences for themselves, right? Fear of getting canceled, for instance, of losing their job. And so often what we saw was that people who really do believe in treating people with respect and driving toward greater equality and greater inclusion were retreating. And we realized that in order to overcome that barrier, we wanted to give people practical tools and tips for how to have these conversations better. Because with a lot of the social movements of the past decade, there are a lot of people who've become very passionate about issues of justice, issues of inclusion. But I right. think what they lack is those tools for now what? Now that I've been activated in my passion, how do I translate that into the daily concrete interactions that I'm having with people in my life? Right. And I, I think that's only part of, of the arena. I think there's another part of society that is terrified of having these conversations because of where it might take us next. So it's not only yep. the folks who want to see progress made, but it's folks who are concerned that it's happening too fast or in areas they don't want it to go. So the, the, my question for you is, why do you think these conversations are as tricky and as divisive as they seem? Yeah, well, one of the big factors, I think, is just demographic change that's been happening rap rapidly in the United States, combined with activism that we see from members of marginalized groups. And that's been picking up speed over the last you know, couple of decades, especially the last decade, even the last five years, right? So if you think about the succession of different movements that have been challenging the way things are done in society, right? You look just even in recent times with uh, the LGBTQ rights movement, you look at the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And all of those movements, what they have in common is that they're saying to members of the majority group in those instances or the dominant group or whatever you want to call the people on the other side of those conversations, it's turning to them and saying, we want you to do better you haven't been treating us well enough. We want you to change how you do things, right? And that's very threatening to anyone to hear, I think, because we all like to see ourselves as good people. We all think that we're doing the right thing. And so when we get challenged from all different angles, from people who belong to all these social groups saying, actually, I don't like the way that you've been speaking about me, or I don't feel that I'm included in this classroom, or I don't like that that term that you just used, or I feel like I deserve that promotion and you didn't give it to me because you're biased against me. Those are very threatening things to hear. And so I think one of the biggest changes that's made it really hard is just that those groups are becoming more empowered to speak up and challenge things that they've been tolerating for a really long time and have never had the numbers or the power to be able to challenge. You've shared that in the old days of like three years ago, you could afford to sit on the sidelines. Five years ago, it may not even be a, a game you were observing, but today in the marketplace, we're all living and working in that this is a conversation that you cannot sit on the sidelines of. You've got to actively participate 
Why do you feel so strongly about that? Well, because nowadays sitting on the sidelines is not really seen as neutrality. I think in the past, people often would think, look, if I just put my head down and you know focus on my job or whatever it is, I can avoid dealing with all this drama that has to do with issues of diversity and inclusion. But these days, what happens is if you do sit on the sidelines, more and more people are calling that out in and of itself and saying, you know what, silence is not neutrality. Silence is complicity with an unfair or unjust status quo. So a good example of this that we talk a bit about in the book is of a corporate leader who after the um, you know, surge of interest and, and protests around Black Lives Matter in 2020 was really nervous about making any kind of a statement or having any sort of a forum in his workplace around these issues. But what he ultimately realized was if I say nothing when everyone else is talking about this and it's the biggest issue of the day, and if I just sit there and don't speak, people aren't going to think, oh, well, that guy's just neutral. He's just carrying on with his job. They're actually going to judge me negatively for not saying anything. So I think more and more that's really happening across the board where sitting on the sidelines is not neutral and people need to actually kind of learn the skill of how to participate effectively. And, and for the folks who are saying, you know what, I, I, it's just, uh, it doesn't relate to me. Why, why do I have to get involved in something that uh, I'd rather not be involved in? How, how do you respond to those folks? Well, often I think these conversations will come to you, even if you don't seek them out, right? So I think that there are certain communities, for example, where you may not encounter some of these conversations um, as often, right? So if you work in a, let's say you work in a small workplace where that's fairly homogeneous and you're not interacting across lots and lots of lines of difference of race and ethnicity and gender and so on, you might be able to avoid some of these conversations for a while. But what happens if you know, a friend in your life comes out to you as a lesbian or what happens if, you know, a colleague of yours says, like the colleague said to you, you know, what you said to me the other day actually offended me. I know you thought that you were saying the right thing, but but it offended me. So oftentimes in these conversations, they're going to come to you, even if you're trying your best to avoid them, or you're in the classroom setting, for example, and you've said something in the conversation that another student is upset about. Mm. Um, so even there, I kind of feel like even if you're not actively seeking them out, learning how to navigate this terrain is really important. So what we all know about this terrain, regardless of how we feel about the terrain and how engaged we are navigating it, is that it is easy to make mistakes when we have these conversations. So as, as a researcher and as a speaker and as a man who is living this each day through your life, what are some of the more common mistakes that you see when we talk, when we have these identity conversations? The four most common mistakes are what we call ADDA, so avoid, deflect, deny and attack. So we spoke a little bit about avoidance, um, which could be literally walking out of the room. It could be just going completely silent in the conversation, or it could be sort of faking your opinions, not really telling people what you actually think. All of those we bucket into avoidance behavior. Deflect is where you deflect away from the substance of whatever it is that the other person is wanting to speak to you about. So you gave a really raw, honest, authentic example of deflect in the introduction that you gave, right? Where someone comes to you and says, 
hey, I was upset when you used this term. And the immediate response that so many of us engage in is to deflect to our own credentials as good people and say, doesn't this person know how good I am? Or we deflect to our intentions. Doesn't this person know that I meant well in that situation, right? So that's those are examples of deflect. Deny is where we just flatly say, you're wrong, no questions asked. I'm just going to put up a wall and say, I don't want to hear it. It's not to say you can't disagree, right? You can disagree, but denial is a more reflexive just statement of you're wrong, either what you're, the facts of what you're saying are wrong or your feelings are invalid in some way. And then finally, attack is when you really make it personal. So you turn the tables on the other person and you make it something like, well, what about when you said, you know, X, Y, and Z last week, or you're not perfect either because of X, Y, and Z reasons. Those are the traps and they're traps, not only when we're having conversations around what you and I are talking about today, but I think they're traps when we disagree with people generally in life. What are some ways we can either circumnavigate those traps or once we find ourselves living there in avoidance by deflecting in denying or in attacking, we can rise above that. Yeah, it's a great question because I totally agree with you. These skills are transferable to other contexts as well. Like these behaviors you might recognize in conversations with your spouse or with your friends. Yeah. And so uh, we think two of the most important skills to develop here are resilience and curiosity. And so let me just take those briefly. So resilience is really building up the kind of emotional stock that's necessary to actually sit in the discomfort that you're feeling and actually stay with the other person in the conversation. So when you're having these difficult conversations, it really creates a swell of difficult emotions. You might feel fear or anger or guilt or any number of difficult emotions. And our tendency when we feel those emotions is to jump into fight or flight mode. So the flight mode is, you know, avoiding or deflecting. Let me just go off to some other topic, right? And the fight mode is the denial or attack. I'm going to stay here with you in the conversation, but I'm going to push back really hard on what I'm hearing. And so resilience is about techniques for actually building that Uh, keeping yourself emotionally grounded to stay in the conversation. And I can talk more if it's helpful about what exactly that means. And then curiosity is the other element of that, which is the more cognitive or intellectual side of things. So even if you're emotionally grounded in the conversation, oftentimes when we enter these conversations, we go in really certain that we've got it right and that we know the full truth, right? And that this other person has it wrong. And so curiosity is about flipping that and thinking to yourself, well, maybe maybe I don't have all the answers, right? Maybe there's a lot of information that I don't know about this subject. Maybe instead of barreling in with my own opinion, I ought to be listening to the perspective of the other person generously and sharing my own perspective more tentatively, right? So I think if you have those skills of resilience and curiosity, that takes care of a lot of that ADDA behavior that I was describing before. So as, as I look around at the political theater and even in corporate America and around the world, I see very few examples, if I'm being honest with you, of conversations that are had in the manner in which you're suggesting they should be, where there is more openness, where there is greater resiliency, where there is a curiosity to tell me more about that. Where, where do you see this being played out well? 
I see it being played out well at much more local scales, right? In sort of family conversations, conversations among friends, maybe conversations among colleagues that are in a low stakes kind of an arena. I think the higher that you make the stakes or the more public that you make the interaction, the worse this behavior gets, right? So if I look on, say, you know, as you said, in politics, if I look on the floor of Congress, I'm not seeing uh, good behavior. If I look at social media, I'm not seeing good behavior at all, because it's not really created to allow for resilient and curious conversations. It's created to allow for sound bites and dunking on people and getting retweeted a lot um, and shared a lot. Whereas I think when you put people into private spaces, if you're having a cup of coffee with someone in your living room with a neighbor or a friend, and you're talking about something really intimate and personal, and you don't have cameras on you, it's not being recorded on a cell phone. So the actual defensiveness can come down. I think there are a lot of conversations like that happening in people's living rooms or their offices that are resilient and curious. Mm. So I believe we change the world one life at a time, starting with our own. And so we've got to become resilient first and we've got to become curious first. And we've got to guide others, including the one across from us in the coffee shop or the family room or the bedroom to become a little bit more resilient and a little bit more open and curious themselves. How do we guide others lovingly and tenderly and appropriately so that they can engage in these conversations with us? And again, I'm, I'm not just talking about race and politics and gender identity. Like this is in every aspect of our lives. How do we guide others to be a bit more resilient and a bit more open-minded and curious? So one of the tools that we talk about for building resilience is adopting a growth mindset. So this is going to be a concept that many of your listeners may be familiar with of Carol Dweck's work as a psychologist, where she distinguishes between people who have a fixed mindset So if I'm not good at something, I assume that it's because I'm innately bad at it and I'm never going to get better at it versus a growth mindset, which is the idea that my skills, my attributes can be learned through effort, right? And so her research shows that if you have a growth mindset, then you you can bounce back from mistakes and you can learn and achieve greater success across a whole number of arenas of life. Now, this is no different, but the problem is, as social psychologist Dolly Chug points out, In this arena of diversity and inclusion, we tend to go into a fixed mindset really quickly. And the reason for that is that making a mistake is not like, you know, playing the wrong key on a piano piece that you're trying to learn, right? Or messing up a word in a foreign language that you're trying to learn. Making a mistake in this area seems to implicate who we are as people. So it turns me into a bad person to make a mistake. And so one of the things that we encourage people to do in the book is to show generosity toward people who make mistakes, right? We have a whole chapter on this about how when someone makes a mistake on these issues, and I'm not talking about, you know, extreme mistakes. I'm not talking about extreme bigotry and sexual harassment and really terrible behavior like that. I'm talking about the kind of mistakes that everyone makes from time to time in their lives, right? Display generosity, toward people who make those mistakes rather than immediately judging them and condemning them and telling them that they're a terrible person, right? And the reason why it's important to display generosity is because I think that's what then allows people to adopt a growth mindset. If I know that I'm allowed, I can make a mistake around you and you're not immediately going to condemn and cancel me, but you're going to give me an opportunity to grow from that mistake, 
then what that means is that when I make a mistake, I don't need to immediately jump to a defensive posture. I can actually take that mistake as an invitation to learn. So then I can see it a little bit more like learning a piano piece where I say, oh, you know what? I got that wrong today, but it doesn't make me a terrible person. It's just something that I need to learn and I'll try and do it better next time. And so I think that element of generosity toward people who make mistakes is a really crucial feature. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on what you're talking about there, which is not only the opposite of generosity, ultimately is the cancelization of others. Cancel culture is a big part of the world we're living in today. What is your take on cancel culture? Why is it so prevalent and um, and what is the effect of it? Yeah, so I don't think cancel culture is all bad, right? I think there are some aspects of cancel culture that have rightly kind of jolted people out of their complacency because people, if you, if you don't fear that there's ever going to be any consequences for you, <laughs> if you get these things wrong, then there's no progress, I don't think, right? Like, I think if you don't fear that anything is going to happen to you or anything's going to challenge your organization, if it doesn't do the right thing, then you can just sort of sit around and ignore these issues. So I think the pressure that cancel culture creates can be positive in that way. I think the problem is what it also does is it makes a lot of people retreat in right. fear because they become disoriented because they they could be supporters of these issues, but because of the fear of cancellation or because they've been cancelled in the past, they run uh, screaming in the other direction. So as a result, what happens to these conversations is that the people who participate in them most confidently are the people on the fringes, right? So you see you know, well-versed progressives who revel in their sort of virtue and virtuosity and create intricate mazes of language that everyone has to follow. And then on the other side, you have provocateurs who, you know, want to actually barrel through and bulldoze those mazes down and say, I don't care about what you think, facts don't care about your feelings, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I think what happens to a lot of the people in the middle is that they see that debate and it freaks them out. And instead of thinking, well, I want to participate in that and I want to learn, and that sounds like a great conversation to have, they end up retreating in fear. And so I think what ultimately, while canceling someone might be appropriate in extreme cases, like those I was talking about before, for the run of the mill cases, I think it's uh, antithetical to growth to cancel people because they're just going to shut down rather than learning. So in life, Life in relationship breeds some challenges. We're going to have some disagreements with those we love and with those we, uh, we're we not so wild about. How, how do we have healthy, legitimate conversations when we disagree with the one seated on the opposite side of the table? Yeah, so this is a really critical point because oftentimes in these conversations, uh, I think people feel like they're not allowed to disagree right? We hear that a lot from people. <laughs> I, I'm not allowed to share my real opinions because of exactly the cancel culture that I was just describing. We think you absolutely can disagree with someone, but there are a few factors to try when you're engaging in that disagreement. So one is to do what we call locating the conversation on the controversy scale. So if you imagine a scale of where you map what it's like to have a disagreement about different kinds of subjects. So imagine that you're just disagreeing over tastes. I prefer chocolate ice cream to vanilla ice cream, right? That kind of a disagreement is very low stakes and that's on one end of a spectrum. 
Now Not imagine it, that's a big disagreement <laughs> at our freezer each night, but yes, continue on. Yes. Um, and then imagine if you go sort of one notch over to the right on that scale, and now you're debating an issue of fact. Now I'm not talking about, you know, facts like uh, values disguised as facts. I'm just talking about pure facts, like who, what, when, where, how. I think that disagreement is going to be harder to have than a taste disagreement, but it's not going to be as difficult as having a disagreement over values, right? I think it starts to get really tricky when the disagreement moves further over to the right of the scale. And now you're looking at a disagreement over policies or a disagreement over values, or even to the furthest extreme, a disagreement over the very equal humanity of the person that you're speaking with, right? And I think what often happens in these conversations is that people place themselves at different points on a controversy scale. So if I'm talking with, let's say I'm disagreeing with another parent at my children's school because I think that the curriculum at the school is too heavily focused on issues of, of diversity and I think it's too progressive on race issues. And so this is my view is I want to disagree with this, this person who, who actually supports those policies at the school. Now, let's say that person is a woman of color, right? I might be having that conversation, treating it as a disagreement over policies. All yeah. we're talking about here is the curriculum at the school. But to her, she might interpret that disagreement as a disagreement over her belonging at that school, over whether her children belong at that school. Like to her, it is a much deeper kind of disagreement. And so I think as a starting point, when you're having these kinds of disagreements, you don't have to go over to her point on the scale and say, oh yeah, you're absolutely right. Whatever you say is correct. But I think acknowledging what it means to the other person is a really critical skill. So just saying to that person, you know, I know that for you, the issue of how race is taught in this school and what the experience of your child is like at this school is an extremely uh, important, deeply personal matter. And for me, I'm going to be bringing some policy arguments to the table here and I want to have a respectful conversation, but I want to honor what this means to you. And I understand that it has that deeper significance to you. So often, I think just taking that small step of acknowledging what a disagreement might mean to the other person can be really helpful. Of course, there are other things that you can do too, like trying to find areas of commonality where you can. Oftentimes right. in these conversations, we assume that the person that we're speaking with is radically opposed to the way that we're looking at the issue, but often they're not. Like Often there are actually things that you can hold in common. So even in that hypothetical example that I just had, where you have the parent who you know, is anti-CRT or whatever, and then the other parent who who supports the, the race curriculum at the school, they might share in common a belief that all students matter at the school and that all students deserve to be treated with fairness and respect and feel like the school is a place where they belong, right? And then they might just disagree over some of the mechanics of how that is actually implemented in the actual curriculum. And so acknowledging that as a starting point and saying this is something that we share is also a really powerful tool for disagreement. So today you are a professor, you are a thought leader, an author, a practitioner of this stuff. For the rest of us, these are note cards, man. Like we're, we're doing the best we can navigating life on one side of an issue or on the other. And pretty, pretty quickly it becomes emotional, almost mm -hmm. immediately. How do we exhale some of that emotion and lead forward with love and empathy? 
I know I'm asking you kind of questions you, you may not have written specifically about or thought about, but they're important. Yeah. So when you're talking yeah. about a guy who disagrees with what is being taught in that school and a woman who's raising her African-American child in that school, they may be in different parts of that, that continuum, but they're coming at it from completely different emotions, both yeah. felt hotly. So how do you, yep. how do you lower the temperature so we can indeed hold hands and then move forward as one? Yeah. So I'll mention a couple, uh, I can talk about more, but a couple of things come to mind are, so this is going to sound maybe a little corny to some listeners, but there's a tool that's used in psychology called self-affirmation, um, that is recommended in this area as well by a social psychologist, Robert Livingston. So self-affirmation is where you write down things about yourself that you value, that matter to you, that are important in your life. Now, they don't have to do with this arena at all. They can be your family. They can be accomplishments that you've had at work. They can be the deepest values that drive you um, as a person or things about your own life or your own character that you're proudest of. And what the research shows is that taking time, if you know that you're about to enter a difficult conversation, let's know that, let's say you know that you're about to speak with someone at the school about this issue and you're feeling anxious about it and you're worried. Taking some time to actually write down three things about yourself that are affirmations, that's been shown to actually help people stay grounded in a conversation because they're able to put the anxiety of the conversation in the context of the bigger picture of their life. So what they realize is, you know what, it's not actually one of my most important things in my life that this particular conversation that I'm having go well for me. What's really important in my life is my family or my faith or whatever it is that really drives you. And so you can enter that conversation feeling a bit more emotionally grounded. Another, you know, example is, is what we call naming and reframing. So sometimes when we have these conversations, they feel so overwhelmingly uncomfortable, but we don't really know how to describe what that discomfort is. We just want to run in the other direction. But again, a lot of the research indicates that just taking the time to name the emotion that you're experiencing with specificity can help reduce some of the harmful effects of that emotion. So the four most common ones that we see are fear, anger, guilt, and hopelessness. So fear is, you know, I'm terrified that I'm going to get canceled. Anger is how dare this person say that about me? I'm not XYZ. Guilt is actually that person was totally fair to call me XYZ. I'm a terrible human being. I should, I should go and self-flagellate. And then, you know, hopelessness is throwing your hands up in the air. I, I just can't win no matter what I try. Um, you know, I'm told to uh, share the mic and that I'm speaking too much in these conversations. But then when I sit back, I'm told that silence is violence and that I need to speak more. This is ridiculous. I, I just give up, right? Yeah. So just naming that emotion, what am I feeling right now in this moment helps. And then trying to reframe that emotional experience. So for example, in the case of guilt, if your issue is, I just feel this horrifying guilt every time I make a mistake in these conversations. So example that we use is, let's say you confuse two people of Asian descent in the workplace, right? Like, let's say you call them each other's name and you realize that that's a stereotype about Asian people looking alike and you feel horrible that you've mixed up these two individuals. Now you could just wallow in that guilt 
Or you could name that you're feeling guilty and then reframe it in your head to say, you know what, I don't have to interpret this as I'm a terrible person for making this mistake. I can just interpret it as I made a mistake, but I'll apologize, learn their names and try to get it right next time, right? Everyone makes mistakes. So that process, and you can do that for fear and anger and hopelessness as well. You can actually take the emotion, think about what's driving it, and then come up with a reframed interpretation of that emotion. And so I think if you do that, self-affirm, and then do the naming and reframing, that can go some way to helping people enter these conversations a bit more emotionally grounded. Mm. As you travel around the country and now around the world, are you seeing these conversations being had in a more healthy arena? Uh, not really, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a big reason why we wrote the book is because, you know, we're seeing people uh, who are messing them up all the time and are not sure how to have them correctly. And they're offending people and they're getting upset that they offended people and getting offended and so forth. So, uh, but, you know, a big reason and what we're hoping will be the impact of this book if it, if it does well and, and, and the conversations that we're having is that we hope it will give people some tools for how to navigate them effectively. I am totally confident that this is something that is learnable, right? A lot of people think you either have it or you don't in these conversations. So especially people from older generations, they often see things are changing so quickly. Young people are speaking about these issues in a completely different way to how they spoke about these issues. And so they end up just thinking, oh my goodness, I just can't keep up. I can't learn this. I'm totally convinced that that's not actually the case, that you can learn to have these conversations more effectively and that if people actually put these tools into practice, they'll find that it has that impact. But as I look out there in the, in, in the manner that you just described earlier, John, about looking at these conversations happening in the public arena, like looking at you know, how people apologize when they make a mistake, for instance, right? Are they doing it well or are they doing it badly? Sadly, I think more often I see bad apologies rather than good ones, right? The challenging thing in a political world and social world you and I are playing in is the more you're on the fringe, the more noise you make and the more followers you, you garner. And so for yes. those of us actually trying to have the healthy conversation and draw people into a, an appropriate debate, which is not a yelling match, it is a, indeed a conversation on these topics yeah, that is sometimes shouted down by those on on the fringes. And that's a big reason why, you know, I think social media is a really bad place to have these conversations. We actually toyed with writing a chapter on social media conversations and how to have better conversations about these issues. And what we found as we were researching it and writing it was we kind of felt like, <laughs> you know what, this is a little, this is a little hopeless. I'm just not sure that right. this arena, like talking to people about these issues on Twitter, I, I don't really know how to make that better. I think what I would advise people to do is get off Twitter or get off Facebook and, and talk to that person face to face. Yes. Next time we have you on, we'll talk only about <laughs> social media and its effect on these conversations. So in these divided days that are so highly polarized, you remain optimistic and hopeful in the power of conversation. Why? Yes, because I believe that uh, it's like what you said earlier, John, about you know change happening one person at a time. I think in this arena, so often change happens one conversation at a time, right? And that, uh, as I mentioned, I think at a local level, 
people talking to their friends in their living room or someone having a conversation with a trusted colleague in their workplace, I really think in those moments, there is huge potential for hearts to be opened and for minds to be changed and for people to find common ground with one another, right? I I don't feel so hopeful about the political arena where I feel like there's a lot more kind of systemic issues there. There's a lot more kind of bows and arrows going back and forth. But at that local sphere of influence where I think most of us live our daily lives, right? I think it's very easy to get sucked into the sort of national political discourse. But when we really think about, well, where do I have influence in my own life? It's right. more often than not on a smaller scale. It, it's more often, you know, with with your children or, you know, with parents at, at, at your kid's school or with people at your faith community or wherever it is. And I feel like there, if when you speak to people in that context, I feel like people are fundamentally decent and open and willing to engage with each other in conversation if they're treated with respect and with if they're treated with resilience and curiosity and generosity and all of those things that I've talked about before. I really believe that people respond to that in kind, right? If you're treating them with resilience and curiosity and generosity, they're going to do the same back to you. About halfway through your book, you, you quoted a child's book, The Magical Yet. To me, a big part of the conversation must be around how do we remain curious to the opinions and the ideas that someone else has. So as we age, we become so certain. We kind of just know everything. Just ask us. And yet your book and that little child's book reminds us of how little we know and how much farther we have to go together. So my, my final question for you before we shift into the Live Inspired 7 is how do we remain open and curious to the amazing power of yet. So one of the techniques we talk about is borrowed from the philosopher Christy Dotson, where uh, she says, imagine that you're entering a nuclear physics seminar, right? Now, unless I'm sure there are some nuclear physicists listening to this, but assuming that you are not (laughs) a nuclear physicist, what she talks about is if you go into that seminar Even if you have learned some things about nuclear physics, let's say you've done the assigned reading, right? And you kind of have have started dipping your toes in the subject. You are going to be incredibly humble about all the things that you still don't know because it's an intimidating subject matter. And you're going to realize that the person who's teaching you about nuclear physics knows more about the subject. And so you're going to be constantly um, sort of not on edge, but wondering, do I really understand this properly? Do I need to ask more questions? What might I be missing in this conversation? And so we want you to kind of take that attitude of the nuclear physics seminar, a little bit of that over to these conversations where you're talking to someone about an experience in their life that you haven't experienced yourself. So let's say that you are a non-disabled person and you're talking with someone who uses a wheelchair. Now that person, if you're talking with them about disability, that person is going to know a lot more about what it's like to be someone with a disability than what you're going to know, right? They're going to know in their neighborhood, what are the areas that have curb cuts or ramps? They're going to know what biases and barriers people with disabilities encounter as they go about their life. They're going to know about the ways of non-disabled people probably better than you do, right? Like what are the assumptions and stereotypes that non-disabled people 
make. And so if you enter into that conversation with that person, what we want you to do is adopt that same posture of radical humility and say, mm. you know, I'm entering this conversation realizing that there's a lot here that I don't know. And so I'm going to have to listen generously and share tentatively. So listening generously means rather than sort of constantly injecting my opinion into the situation, I want to invite the other person's opinion so that I can learn from them in the conversation. And then sharing tentatively means rather than expressing my position as statements of fact, I'm going to use a lot of I statements. I wonder dot, dot, dot. I feel dot, dot, dot. I've been thinking dot, dot, dot. What do you think, right? To invite their pushback on that perspective. We often refer to this as speaking in drafts. So you might even say, we sometimes say to people, you know, this is a draft, so please edit, right? And you can say that in conversations. Like, here's a thought that I had, but it's a draft, so please edit. And I think what that signals to the other person is, you know that there are things that you don't know, right? It doesn't mean you have to agree with whatever the other person is telling you, but it means that you're just respecting the fact that they're bringing this extra knowledge into the conversation that you might lack. Man, you said a lot there that was really beautiful including two wonderful words, radical humility, radical humility. And although we may not see it a whole lot from our political leaders, and although we may not see it a whole lot from our corporate leaders, I hope those uh, those who live around us in our neighborhoods and celebrate life around our kitchen tables with us see it in us. David, as we wrap up this conversation, we do so with seven questions. They tether all of our guests together. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, you as a trained attorney, current professor, I think you're <laughs> capable of handling these, my friends. So put on your radical humility cape. Here we go. All right. What is the most impactful book you have ever read? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I, the one that immediately comes to mind is a book by Heather McGee, and it's called The Sum of Us. Uh, and it is a book about uh, how racism affects everyone in society in a negative way, right? So it's basically reframing the issue of racism from just something that negatively impacts people of color, though, of course, they're the primary targets of it, to really understand the ways that even racism harms white people um, in society and our relationships. So I, I think that book has been a really powerful influence on my thinking on these subjects. Uh, well, you just sold uh, another one of those books. I've been told several times I should check it out, and now I, uh, I'm committing to it, the sum of us. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in Australia that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? One trait that really made me stand apart a little bit when I was a kid was just how utterly dogged determined I was in the face of adversity. So if I experienced a challenge in life, my attitude to it was like, I'm just going to push hard against this challenge until I overcome it. And I think strangely, as I've aged, sometimes, you know, I can get a little bit more easily frazzled by situations, right? I can find challenges a bit more overwhelming. And I think I need to rekindle a little bit more of that sort of youthful spirit of the kind of I can do it attitude. Awesome. If your apartment caught fire and all living things are out, your partner, your children, animals, everything's outside. And you have an opportunity to run back inside and grab one thing that really matters to you. What would you grab? Oh, well, you know, if I had superhuman strength, it would definitely be my piano. Um, I love playing the piano. Um, It is my a source of such joy and comfort and stress relief for me. And so if I 
somehow was able to push that enormous piano through the door, <laughs> I would do it. So I, I play the piano too, probably not quite as well as you, but I, I do play. What's the song right now? When you, when you wrap up this day today, what's the first song you would sit down and play? So I, I love uh, Chopin. I'm, I, I, I'm classically trained uh, in piano. And so um, I'm really tackling a, a difficult uh, ballad by uh, Chopin right now. And uh, it's, it's, it's above my ability level, but I'm yep. still striving to do my best. Uh, I'm tackling you too. So uh, you and I are in <laughs> different pay grades currently, but uh, I look forward to meeting you in the middle, my friend. If you could sit on a bench with Chopin or Bono or anybody else and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Hmm, that's a great question. I think I would love to chat with uh, Barack Obama. Um, you know, he's someone I think who came to power at a really interesting time uh, in the U.S. Obviously, the country has changed tremendously from what it was like uh, when he became the president. I would like to know a little bit about what he thinks about the direction that the country has gone in, what he thinks his legacy is or isn't, and how he sort of responded to how things have unfolded since he left. What's the best advice that you've ever received? This might be a little bit counter-cultural, counter-intuitive, but, you know, I once received advice to not plan so much for the future. Um, you know, often I think people, especially from a career standpoint, when they're younger, if they're, if they're smart or ambitious, are pushed into making long-term plans and people always ask, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you see yourself in 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I did get advice once to let go of some of that because life takes you so often in completely unexpected directions and the ability to uh, go with the flow and be open to uh, unanticipated challenges or unanticipated opportunities can be um you know, a re can lead to surprising, you know, wins in life. And so I've tried to take that advice on board in my own life a little bit more. You may have just answered the next question too, but here it comes. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? I think I would give myself advice um, that it's that it's all going to turn out okay. I think at that time, like so many people coming out of their adolescence and into young adulthood, I was feeling very anxious about the future worried about, you know, my personal life. I think one of the benefits of, of aging is that you can put things into perspective a little bit more. And I think I would uh, go back to that person and say, you know, it's going to, it's going to turn out. Okay. You don't need to worry so much. Mm. David Glasgow, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Uh, I don't always live up to this, uh, ambition, but I hope that uh, when people remember me or try to sum up my life, that they will say that I showed compassion to, to, um, to people. Uh, I, I try when I can to, to empathize and, and, and put myself in other people's shoes, but I just feel like compassion is such an important value of mine. And so I hope that I can live up to that. Author, professor, attorney, father, and compassionate human being. David, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired podcast today. 
Thank you so much, John. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. My friends, that is David Glasgow. He's the author of the book, Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. My name is John O'Leary, and today is our day. What a gift. Live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. 
You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley Companies.com. 